0: Welcome to another edition of In Memoriam. Today we're going to talk about a scholar, a very important scholar of the history of mathematics, the history of astronomy, uh, Otto Neugebauer. And with us today are Professor Alexander Jones and Professor Charles Bonnet to share with us a little bit about uh, the person uh, and also the, his, his, the importance of his work. Uh, towards the history of astrology and the history of mathematics and um, astronomy uh, as well. Welcome.
1: Welcome. Thank you for being with us today.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, uh, one of the things that I recall constantly with uh, Otto Nügbauer is his famous uh, the study of wretched subjects. Uh, <laughs> which i think is what is uh one of the well, a key moment i think in terms of historiography uh and the way historiography thought uh, about the history of uh, well not only astrology but also magic and other little uh, related subjects are the wretched other wretched, wretched subjects um so why how Who is Otto Neugebauer uh, uh, in a sense? Who who was this person? What's his history in terms of uh, personal
2: and academic? Well, perhaps uh, I I should start us off then with a a very shortened uh, sort of intellectual biography of Neugebauer. Uh, It's a very interesting uh, scholarly life that he led. And there's an excellent uh, uh, biography, short biography, not a book length one, but like a, a, an article uh, by Noel Swerdlow that one can find online in various forms uh, which uh, goes into a much broader picture of his uh, activities and importance than uh, we would want to do as as a podcast so I can certainly recommend looking for that Uh, but I have a few slides that uh, can guide us through the story of his his we could say his journey to astrology and his uh He's rather delicate, dipping his toes into the field. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking for the share screen. And Hi. Oh. There. Yes. yes. So I'm, I'm showing you a picture of Neugebauer in his thirties, I suppose. It's from in the mid 1930s uh, when he was uh, at the University of Göttingen in Germany. Um, at this point, it's. This, not quite halfway through his career, but it's when he was really just embarking on uh, the public career as an important contributor to the history of science. He he came to be considered, I think rightly so, as one of a handful of the most uh, important and influential historians of the science of the 20th century, particularly for the history of what he called the exact sciences. And we may remember from the podcast in memoriam for David Pingree, the question of what constitutes exact sciences uh, for Neugebauer really meant the mathematical sciences. Uh, he, had, he had come to, the, come to the, the, this historical field um, by a rather circuitous route. Uh, when, when he started university, he began uh, in engineering, then moved to physics and then to mathematics. And mathematics brought him to Göttingen, which was uh, in the uh, 1920s and early 1930s uh, the, most, uh, the, the most famous, the most uh, outstanding center for current mathematical research. Not historical research on mathematics, but actual mathematics being created. Uh, this was uh, the department, the Institute of Mathematics of uh, David Hilbert. Um, and uh, after Hilbert retired, uh, Richard Courant, um, who uh, was a close associate of Neugebauer's uh, from when Neugebauer was a student there, graduate student to later on when he started uh, role on the um, sort of junior faculty. Uh, and so over over a number of years, Neugebauer um, uh, found himself from being a, a, a doctoral student to having uh, what uh, I think would translate in English as, as an ad hominem professorship, meaning not an officially funded university chair, but one that was a position that was created for him with the rank of professor, uh, but not a fully funded position. So it was uh, a, a kind of special one. And the, the reason he had it was partly because he was a, an administrative wizard. Uh, he was uh, Courant's sort of right-hand man in organizing the Mathematical Institute, uh, designing many of the features of their new Rockefeller Foundation-funded building, which is still the home of the uh, Institute in Göttingen now, uh, with thinking of all kinds of things, like how do you lay out a library for mathematicians that suits their needs instead of simply following the traditional layout of a, of a say, a humanistic library. Um, he was also very good with uh, with the finances, and this was going through the uh, th- through the very rocky days of uh, Weimar Germany's uh, economy during the in the Great uh, Inflation. The Mathematical Institute managed to. Uh, uh, managed to make a certain amount of extra income because they had a calculating machine that Neugebauer knew how to operate that could function with the super high numbers that the, uh, the that, that the government uh, was having to come out with every week uh, for the, the new inflation rates. Uh, and so they would know a little bit in advance of every, everyone else what the rates were going to be and, and uh, <laughs> use this as, as a way of leveraging a little bit of uh, uh, clever investment themselves. So uh, this was one side of Neugebauer and, and he, he was one of the, he was the founder of, uh, founding editor of both the great 20th century uh, reviewing journals of mathematics, uh, first the Central Blatt, the, which was uh, published by uh, the publisher Springer, um, and then uh, later on, when in, under Nazi Germany, the uh, editorial practice of the Central Blatt were interfered with by the government so that they couldn't review books by unacceptable people like Jewish mathematicians, or have uh, or reviews written by them. Uh, Neugebauer quit this, uh, and he was brought to America in 1939 Uh, because of of his knowledge of how to do a journal like that. And so he became the founding editor of Mathematical Reviews, which was the, uh, for for many decades, the competing mathematical reviewing journal, though he didn't stay editor of that for very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, But meanwhile, he he was becoming in the 1920s, deeply interested in uh, ancient mathematics, uh, particularly Egyptian mathematics, the uh, texts like the, the Rind Papyrus, which is mostly now in the British Museum, uh, and other more recently discovered mathematical documents. And he wrote his dissertation um, on the arithmetic of fractions that the ancient Egyptians of the second millennium BCE uh, operated with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he soon uh, moved over from Egyptian texts, which were not very large in number. So I think he, he pretty well finished what he thought he could do with them to Babylonian ones, which was a much less explored field. Uh, And so he he began systematically finding and uh, publishing both as editions of the text themselves, but also translations and commentaries, uh, all the ancient Babylonian mathematical texts that he could trace. Uh, This was uh, a massive three volume edition in German, again published by Springer. Springer was his publisher for most of his career. Uh, And uh, and while he was doing this editorial work. He was also starting off uh, a kind of synthetic history of what he called pre-Greek mathematics, meaning Egyptian and Babylonian mathematics, uh, in the form of of, a little volume of lectures. And he thought of this as something that would be a multi-volume thing that would move into Greek mathematics, but also look at the application of mathematics in astronomy. Uh, So volume one, which actually did appear, Uh, was on the mathematics, properly called, of the Egyptians and Babylonians. Um, And then volume two was supposed to be about Greek mathematics, and volume three about Babylonian mathematical astronomy. But he turned to the mathematical astronomy first, even though that was supposed to be volume three, because he thought it made sense to to start working on that while he still had very much fresh in mind his work on the uh, the clay tablet text for mathematics. Meanwhile, the political situation in Germany became impossible for him. He was not Jewish himself, by the way. He was, uh, uh, well, I think, he, he personally, he was atheist, but he, uh, he he was by family, a Protestant. But he he could not uh, uh, endure uh, employment uh, in a university in Germany under the new Nazi laws in 1933. Karant, who was Jewish, had to leave. Uh, he came to America, uh, to New York and uh, my university, in fact, New York University, where the, there is still the Courant Institute, which is the, the Graduate Institute for Mathematics and Computer Science. Uh, Neubauer uh, was offered the directorship of the Institute and refused to take it. Uh, and instead, he went to Denmark, to Copenhagen, uh, where he spent uh, several years in the in, in the mid to late 1930s, uh, working in their mathematical institute, but on his historical work. So at this point he had moved into history of pre-Greek, mostly Babylonian astronomy in the first instance, but coming to Copenhagen brought him in contact with uh, Danish Egyptologists uh, who were just starting to uh, uh, work through a massive acquisition of Egyptian papyri. Uh, These were papyri from, mostly from the time of Roman rule in Egypt, but written in the Egyptian language in the script called Demotic, uh, which is a rather, you know, a sort of a, a small and rather specialized field within Egyptology. And uh, Copenhagen has from the early 1930s when the, the Carlsberg Foundation, funded by Carlsberg beer, uh, bought these papyri on the antiquities trade And so uh, the the Carlsberg collection is one of the great collections for demonic papyri now. And among those papyri were two uh, quite well-preserved papyri that were clearly to do with astronomy and calendar. So they found out that Neugebauer uh, knew something about ancient astronomy uh, and started working with him. Uh, This is a photograph of one of the two Egyptologists of the uh, I, I, in Copenhagen at the time, he was actually retired at this time, and he, his his expertise in Egyptology was originally in the old ancient Egyptian pharaonic uh, literature written in, uh, in in particularly in you know hieroglyphics on buildings monuments uh, and on papyri often in the hieratic writing, which is more uh, script developed from hieroglyphics that was uh, that, that that was intended for writing on a paper-like material like papyrus. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, um, he one of these papyri, and I'm showing you part of it here. P. Carlsberg number one, uh, which is a mythological astronomical text, was so interesting to him that he he in his old age started learning demotic because this text is partly hieratic but partly demotic and he collaborated with Neugebauer on making an edition for it which uh, came out in 1940 and there's another papyrus papyrus Carlsberg 9 which uh, Neugebauer worked on with the other Egyptologists who was in fact a specialist in demotic and that was published as a journal article uh, about the same time so here's Neugebauer starting to get into uh, papyri, uh, at first Egyptian papyri with astronomical context, contents. And this material, in particular, P. Carlsberg I is not mathematical. Uh, so this is bringing Neugebauer into having to work with a kind of astronomical text that was not so natural for him from his mathematical training. Um, I think he never felt wholly comfortable with this kind of thing. Uh, but the the edition that he and Lange produced was uh, was outstanding, and for uh, for more than half a century uh, was the standard edition. It has now been superseded, um, but uh, and the, in fact there are more copies of the same texts that have turned up, so it really needed a re-editing eventually. But uh, but the, their work was groundbreaking on this material, and it relates to texts that are written in that are written in hieroglyphic on certain. Uh, late kingdom pharaoh's tombs, even though this papyrus was written more than a thousand years later. Uh, so once he had got into this, Nagabar started looking for other papyri, both in Egyptian and in Greek, that related to astronomy. Uh, so we're starting to get a bit closer to, to astrology here because the, uh, well, we would now say at, at, at least that most of those astronomical papyri were the toolkit of astrologers who needed to be able to calculate positions of the heavenly bodies and the configuration of the zodiac with respect to the the horizon for anybody's date of birth or other critical moments in in human history and society. Uh, Nogubar was always a little bit skeptical about that connection, but but at any at any rate, with the papyri, he was he, he was coming into into contact with texts that were at least on the surface astronomical, but also sometimes astrological. And the people who first discovered these papyri and sometimes had published them already weren't always very clear about what they were. Um, so, uh, 1939, he comes to America partly for the Mathematical Reviews project, but he was uh, he was given a professorial position in the mathematics department at Brown University and basically given free run to do his historical work there. And he got very generous funding again from the Rockefeller Foundation for something like a 10-year project in which he and various colleagues like Abe Sachs and Richard Parker uh, would work on on various bodies of material ranging from uh, Babylonian mathematics and astronomy and Egyptian material um, up to to medieval uh, Islamic texts. Uh, I, I like this picture in particular because it's a, it's a full page article from one of the Providence newspapers from 1948. Uh, I wish newspapers would cover this kind of, of thing in the same way now. Um, they, they were clearly very proud of this man who had come to join the, the local university um, and uh, had this nice article in which he's talking about uh, the kind of work that he does in a fairly general way. Uh, And and the photograph is showing him looking at photographs of two Greek astronomical papyri, which are uh, in the papyrus collection in the Rylands Library in Manchester in England. Uh, Nagyabar mostly worked for photographs, by the way, when he was working, whether it was Babylonian tablets or medieval manuscripts or papyri, he seldom traveled to the places uh, where these things were to look at the original objects. It's different from the, the way that most scholars now or even to some extent yet at the time uh, would do this sort of work. And he was able to do this largely because he knew the subject matter and understood mathematical structures and things like that so well that he could read off photographic images, things that other scholars who were maybe more experienced with the script uh, would have trouble reading because they, they could read the script in a general way but wouldn't really know what to expect from maybe just a partly visible symbol um uh, mm-hmm. so uh, so here at this point um uh, he was uh, he, he had t- taken on a number of massive projects he was uh, since the mid-30s he had been uh, working on this big edition of all the babylonian cuneiform astronomical texts uh, which came out eventually in 1955 um uh, That was a big and very elaborate project but at the same time uh, he had started up a project on trying to collect and maybe write a monograph about uh, Greek astronomical papyri and Egyptian astronomical papyri that never actually happened Um, he he wrote many articles on these things but never collected them into a a book devoted specifically to them Um, but the other part of that project was a collaboration with uh, the the just-retired librarian of Brown University, Henry Bartlett Van Hoosen, uh, who had, back in the early 20th century, he had trained at Princeton University as a papyrologist before he got into library work. Um, and so, although mo- his most of his working career at both Princeton and at Brown was as a librarian building up the university collections in general, um, as he pro- approached retirement, Neugebauer got a, you know, got him interested in collaborating with him on uh, making a volume, bringing together all the identifiable Greek horoscope texts. Mm. And this this was both texts that were uh, preserved in the medieval manuscript tradition, in astrological treatises, or sometimes as little, little clusters of horoscopes that are just preserved by themselves in manuscripts. So those were copies of copies of copies of ancient horoscope texts. And most of them a kind of didactic nature, sometimes horoscopes of real people, but in any case interpreted for the training of other astrologers, but also the ones that were preserved through uh, papyri and other archaeologically recovered forms like there are horoscopes that were found written as graffiti on house walls in uh, in, in dura europos in the in the near east for example which uh, had been published but had not been properly understood so this is this is a much smaller project than the than the astronomical cuneiform text but in its own way it too was very uh, it, it had a kind of dynamic effect on recognizing that there was a, a body of material here that could usefully be studied, brought together instead of being scattered in different collections, but also scattered in all sorts of different publications, which uh, at least in America in the 1940s could be very hard to come by. Um, and so this project began right at the end of the 40s and came out as this book in 1959. So it took 10 years basically for, for, for the two to complete this thing. Uh, this is really, the, this was Nagabara's major contribution to actual personal work on astrological texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a, he, I, I think this came maybe partly simply out of his personality, but also out of his background uh, in, in a, a mathematical school that was very uh, rationalistic about what mathematics was and what it was for. Um, that he. he, he he, he believed very strongly that that it was worthwhile to study the history of astrology as well as the history of astronomy, but he didn't really want to do it much himself. Uh, and even the horoscope project, he, he wrote privately to a, a colleague that, uh, that, that that he had found it an awful lot of work to do and not for him terribly rewarding. Uh, well, I can say in in retrospect, for other people like me, it is a very rewarding thing that he he did spend all this time and effort on it. Uh, So uh, this is the sort of stuff for the papyri that he was working with. You can see that it's it's pretty scrappy stuff. The the one on the left is an unusual case where we have a horoscope that actually has a diagram of the horoscope. Uh, Greek, Greek papyrus horoscopes are almost always just text even really just lists of positions. Uh, There there are just a couple that have diagrams as well. The one on the right is a a longer horoscope text, goes into more detail for astrological objects, but you can see the condition of it is really pretty appalling. This is the sort of thing where uh, having an expertise in what the text ought to say, (laughs) uh, takes you a long way in figuring out what it actually does say. Uh, And again, he he was working with photographs, sent him from Oxford, that one. Uh, and, we, and he, you know they, they were they were trying to untwist the fibers to help and get there are, there are different photographs of it but none of them is very good so uh and you were mentioning this uh, uh yes. famous uh almost notorious one page article uh which Neugebauer published as a protest uh the the most famous historian of science in America in the uh in in, in you know the post Second World War period was George Sarton, uh, who was a professor at uh, Harvard University, he wrote these massive uh, sort of uh, bibliographic books on history of science from antiquity to early modern times, which I don't think people use very much anymore, honestly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in, no, Bauer had a, a, you know, he had, he had a, Privately, uh, a, a rather, uh, you know, rather tartly expressed opinions of Sarton's uh, <laughs> kind of history of science, but but here he, he was publishing uh, the, a protest because Sarton had reviewed an edition of, uh, a, a, of of a sort of late antiquity Near Eastern astrological or partly astrological book, in which he he sort of said, well, it, it, it's hardly worth going to the effort of publishing this sort of stuff because it's all nonsense and wretched material. And so uh, the the title here, The Study of Wretched Subjects, is obviously meant, meant ironically, even though Neugebauer sort of agreed in a sense that that, that he, he didn't really respect the the material in astrological texts, but he deeply felt that there was a lot to be learned about them, learned from them, that they, they they could they could give information about the history of astronomy, which he cared about, but also a lot about things like social history, um cosmological ideas and so on and about transmissions between cultures which is something that Neugebauer uh was was a very important aspect of of Neugebauer's own interest in history of science that it was something that 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 got transferred and transformed from one culture to another Uh, so it's uh, uh, a it's a great read and uh
1: We, we will include it in the description
2: right. okay so uh, I, i'll close this little little uh biography just with this lovely photograph from uh for, from his old age this, this photograph is from just a little bit before i came as a student to brown university where neugebauer was still working uh in his retirement as a teacher so he, he didn't teach any classes uh, but he was not retired at all, all in the sense of uh, being an active scholar. He, he had this massive basement office that was basically the whole basement floor of Wilbur Hall, uh, same building that we, we met in the, the David Pingree uh, podcast. Um, you know, when I was there, he was the two things that he was most active on were uh, collaborating with Noel Swordlow on the, the commentary on, on Copernicus as revolutionibus, and uh, his study of Ethiopic astronomical and chronological texts. Uh, he had, he had uh, started learning Ethiopic in his 60s, I guess, uh, and. Uh, Again, it was one of these ironic things that he, he took up Ethiopic. I think expecting that he was going to find some fairly advanced astronomical texts, and he didn't. He found that it was mostly rather for what he thought of the rather low-level calendrical stuff. So he was really frustrated that he invested so much in uh, in, in material that that that. Uh, was not comparable to the Babylonian and Greek astronomical texts that he had, he had uh, loved working with so much from the from the 1930s to the 1970s. Um, but anyway, uh, and I, I've just given you a, a, a little snippet, a typical Neugebauer signature as he would give it to his closer. Uh, colleagues, instead of signing by name, uh, he would put the little backside of an elephant because he was had been known since I don't know when he picked up this nickname, uh, but he he was known to many of the the people who were close to him in scholarship as the elephant. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and and uh, and, uh, and so th- th- this this is how he would ind- indicate that uh, uh, you were part of that little inner circle of people. Uh, <laughs> so with that, I'll, uh, I'll give up my screen. And-
3: no, 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 keep that, keep that yes. image You want that. to keep it? Okay, all right, put it back. <laughs> no, because I would like to pick up from there, really, oh,
0: um, yeah.
3: because, of course, his colleagues in Wilbur Hall, the history of math department, also were animals. I mean, uh, um, oh. uh, Gerald Toomer um, was the home ox and oh. Abby's axe was the rabbit. And uh, Pingree was the kaid, I think, uh, which wasn't an animal. But um, so they yeah, all... And I, and I was
2: SB2, meaning student body 2, because <laughs> right. for the first time in the department's history, there were two students at once.
0: Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, history of mathematics was a was a very boutique department. Yes. I mean, until, until David Pingree started... You know, when he, David Pingree became the sole active professor in the department, he started right. having students at a very rapid pace. But before that probably more years than not, there were no students, mm. and when there was one, there was one. Yeah, um,
3: and, not, and not much teaching either.
2: Yeah, uh, pretty well. I mean, I, I think Abe Sachs taught uh, an undergraduate course on Babylonian mathematics for mm. For people like the Brown football team, uh, you know the, the kind of breadth course that American universities like to have, where where you're not you're not trying to become an expert, but you're trying to get a kind of uh, of exposure to a wide range of things. Yes, um,
3: yes. Well, it was certainly a very close-knit team in Wilbur Hall when I was there in the early 80s. Um, and one thing I remember clearly is that Gerald uh, Toomer, who was also in the basement, I think he had two yeah. corgi dogs. And um, Ottenoikeba always had some dog biscuits in his pockets and uh, would surreptitiously give the dogs a dog biscuit from time to time. (laughs) But the other thing that struck me, I mean, from your um, photographs, uh, Alex, um, and from um, some other photographs I've been looking at, is that Ottenoikeba always had this Mohacan hairdo. His hair went up in the middle.
2: Oh yes, yes. I, I, I was tempted to put in one. The, there's another photograph from the 1970s that uh, it, that has him facing straight on.
3: Yes. Yeah. The hair straight up. <laughs> yeah, 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 and a bit like a hedgehog as well. I mean, he wouldn't. Yes, or as if he had
2: his hand <laughs> on a computer graph generator. Um,
3: um, straight up in the middle. But this very, this very photograph, I think, um, or something very similar to it, um, was the principal. Um, um, display in the office of Michio Yano, who also had been um, working in Brown um, with David Pingree um, and is a very well-known historian of one might say astrology, especially Sanskrit astrology, but also Arabic um, and Chinese, uh, Japanese. Um, And he had this photograph in a very prominent position, as an example of um, what somebody who is in his old age can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And you made the point, uh, Alex, that uh, he started learning Ethiopian when he was in his sixties, if not in his early seventies. And the main work that he published on Ethiopian astronomy and um, computers or calendar studies, um, he published in his eighties. Yes because he died when he was 89, uh, or even 90. Yeah, and and it's not just an article, it's a book, a a substantial book. Uh, And it was the beginning, he was going to write more about Ethiopian. Um, But unfortunately, um, he died when he was, um, um, he didn't quite live long enough to do that, but he was certainly enormously active until the very end and was uh, so proficient in many languages. Of course, he needed Akkadian, he needed um, ancient Egyptian, um, hieratic as well as demotic. Um, He must have learned Tamil because he also published about um, Tamil astronomy um and and of course well he took it for for granted that um you know every every um scholar worth his meat um his page should ha- know greek and latin and arabic <laughs> um and so, although,
2: although apparently when, when he was in school the reason he went into sciences was because he he didn't want to learn greek and latin Oh. Uh, <laughs> oddly oddly enough that, that you know, at, at the beginning this this was something that he he, he found uncongenial and repellent so Ooh. it came full circle eventually uh
3: yes 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 well he he, he must have been very um proficient at all these languages. And of course, um, um, Western scholars are very appreciative um, of the work he did on on Copernicus. You know, so his range okay. was from ancient Egyptian, what, the third millennium BC, until at least uh, the middle of
2: the 15th century. And but, but he also, I mean, he, 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 he did have this remarkable range of languages, not quite as extensive as David Pingree's range, but it was pretty impressive. Um, yeah. And and on the whole, his editorial competence was pretty highly regarded by people who were specialists in the philology of these languages. But um, he also uh, also liked working collaboratively with people. So one of the reasons that Abe Sachs eventually became a faculty member at Brown he, originally, mm-hmm. he was originally funded as a kind of a, sort of almost like a postdoc off that Rockefeller money and, yeah. and, the, uh, and at that time Neugebauer was in the mathematics department and the mathematics department was saying, what are we doing paying a, th- a seriologist here? Um, <laughs> but, but one of the reasons for that and one of the reasons for attracting Richard Parker to Brown as well was because Neugebauer felt that there, there were limits to what he could do when it got out of the very mathematically structured material. And, you know Sachs was working very much on the observational text for example uh and a lot of the egyptian material is is not so mathematical and and so w- w- when Neugebauer felt that, that that maybe he couldn't do quite the job that he felt should be done he would work closely with one of these colleagues uh who of course had to, you know they had to have a certain adeptness in the mathematical side too um uh, that was yeah, very i think it's was worth- I think it's worth
3: emphasizing that these historians of of mathematics, astronomy and so on, they paid so much attention to the texts and to getting the texts right, you know, reading all the manuscripts, comparing um, different papyri and so on. Um, And for that reason, they were sometimes criticised by other historians of magic who said, well, you've got to look at the society, the changes brought about by religion and uh, um, and the courts and that sort of thing, rather than being um, so uh, obsessed, as it were, um, with the primary materials and getting the texts and the translations of those texts right. Um, And, of course, he answers these um, critics. Um, I mean, I've got an article in our own journal, the Journal of the Warburg and Courtload Institutes, um, which you probably know, called Sense and Nonsense in Scientific Jargon. Oh, yes, that's that's another good one. I won't say who he criticizes. but a historian of science or a cultural historian let's say writing about the history of art um who bandies around these scientific mathematical terms without knowing what they mean really (laughs) yes Uh, he didn't mince his words when he criticized i mean
2: particularly in in in, in sort of mid-career around the 1940s when he was uh when, when he was newer in america and was doing a lot of more more public uh, speaking and writing, he gave you know the the, the little book, The Exact Sciences and Antiquity, was originally mm. a lecture series he gave mm. at Cornell University for a general audience. And one of the reasons the book is so good is because he he was consciously writing in a way that would be there was an entrance for people who didn't already have specialized knowledge. Uh, it was the book that drew me into the field, mm. for example. Mm. Uh, but uh, but he, 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 it's not that he didn't believe that there was there that it was possible at some level to learn things about social history and the social context and so on but but that the to do what he was doing well he felt needed um needed very deep specialization you needed to have certain skills really very well refined for the philological ones the mathematical ones there might be ones that no one would teach you at university you have to learn from the texts but you really needed to give everything you had to them Uh, there was there was a point again about the same time i think when When the international astronomical union set up a division for history of astronomy and without asking him they elected him the first president of this commission and the latter survives written about a year later in which he reports to the iau about the only thing i did in the year of my presidency was try to get out of it and he goes on (laughs) to say that he 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 really thinks that, that International organizations that are all about conferences and grantmanship and so on yeah. uh, are actually an obstacle to the the people who are doing the real research, <laughs> who really just need the resources to get photos of manuscripts and be able to sit down quietly and work through these things. Uh, so I, I'm afraid we today are doing all the wrong things.
3: <laughs> yeah. He wasn't going to conferences. He wasn't traveling around the, the world, looking at manuscripts, but he was concentrating on working within his office in Verbal Hall. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, th- I think a, 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 of our sort of broad circle of people who either first-hand or second-hand were connected with him, he was probably the one who did the least traveling for his work.
3: Mm. Mm.
2: Yes. After yes. So that was really just going back and forth between Providence and Princeton annually. Um, mm. because He had appointments in both places. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, he, he's, he's, he spent roughly half his time in Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study, but never had a permanent faculty appointment there because he didn't, he wasn't ready to give all his his time yep. to Princeton. Uh, so what they did was they basically gave him, a, you know, perpetually renewed memberships in the Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, if you go to the Institute for event study website they actually have very good um, very very good information now about all their former members and people who've worked there and you can see the dates of its appointments and he was there was a kind of competition between the the the, the mathematician school mm-hmm. in the institute and the historical school <laughs> about which would get the appointment in first <laughs> um, <laughs> I see, they both wanted him so much. Well, well, he, he, he sort of belonged to both of them, but they they wanted each wanted to get, get the first. Uh...
3: But there, he was always so honest in what he wrote. I mean, whether it was a criticism or whether it was you know about his own capabilities, I was really quite struck uh, looking at um, one of his last works on Ethiopian astronomy and ast- and calendar studies when he says that Abu Shaker, whose work this text is about, um, who was in fact um, an Arabic writer writing in Cairo in the 13th century, but whose work was translated into Ethiopian and became very popular in Ethiopia. Um, he says that Abu Shaka found it very difficult to understand some of this astronomy. And I do too. So I share <laughs> I, I share Shaka, Shaka's um, uh, problem. <laughs> and And he says that neither one of us has reached his goal. Um, But in the same book, and I I was struck also by another statement, which wasn't his own, but a quotation of Erasmus. When he said, I would rather construct 1000 paraphrases than one critical edition. Implying that what was really important was to understand and make clear to his readers what the text was about. Which is not always achieved through a critical edition. Probably you need both. But um, but these one thousand paraphrases, I think, is a, a nice idea.
1: Yes. Yes. It, it seems to be um, uh, one of the m- things that I noticed the most uh, when you said that he was not particularly keen to astrology, but still he invested a lot in its study. Oh, this is really the mark of an historian. Whether you like it or not, if it is relevant for the study or for the culture you're studying, you, you will invest in this study. So this is very relevant, very very revealing, mm-hmm. for um, of his attitude towards history and towards the academic academic study.
2: And his, his friends liked like remarking that he. Li- almost literally, I mean, it's obviously not literally true, but that he read everything, not just not just the kind of stuff that he wanted to work on, yeah. but a great range of authors um, that he didn't want to work on and some that he thought were ridiculous. Uh, again, I mean, j- just, as, just as he was, well, I mean, if he was a bit, of, you know, uh, well, I mean, not particularly attracted to working on astrological texts, but uh, religious texts were particularly uh, mm-hmm. something that he, he had a kind of schadenfreude attitude to, and he, he <laughs> liked reading the the Greek church fathers, but not because he wanted to be edified by them, but because he was looking for passages that he, that he thought were ridiculous in them, and he, he would make the little private collections of laissez <laughs> Uh, I I have a a mimeographed copy of one of these collections that he he made for his colleague at the Princeton Institute, um, um, sorry, the name's just escaping at the moment. uh, a historian of greek greek philosophy there uh harold terns and uh and it, it, it's all the quotations from uh people like hegel i mean philosophers again he, he, philosophy was another of these things and i think it's again the goethe and Mathemat- mathematical institute attitude that philosophy is something antithetical to real science real mathematics <laughs> uh, so you would find these passages in in german philosophers that it, and and in the greek church fathers and uh in moderns Scholarship that that he would just pick out of context and uh, and uh, would uh, uh, you know, share with people as, as something for their private amusement. Uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, George Sarton, the the man whose who review uh, he uh, attacked in the the study of wretched subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, also wrote a review of Neugebauer's uh, astronomical cuneiform text edition uh, in which he, he praised the edition, said it was uh, an outstanding work of scholarship and so on, which was correct. But then said, you know, I, in in my lectures at Harvard University uh, that do the history of science from the beginnings to, to modern times, uh, how would I take this into account in how I do this thing? And and Sarton wrote, I, I basically I wouldn't Introduce it at all, and Neugebauer had snipped out that little paragraph and had it framed in his office. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he
0: had that. This, um, uh, it was a very sharp view, uh. Of, uh, of the of the work and yeah it's it's very interesting because I I only rec- I only knew this this facet of him uh, through exactly the the, the study of wretched subjects uh, which is very sharp in a way that uh, that he attacks Sartre and, and criticizes Sartre but it's it's interesting to see that this, this was a part of him his, of personality. his personality exactly <laughs> yes. this attitude this sarcastic attitude um towards other scholars
3: yes but what what can we say about his legacy i mean would alex you you consider yourself as a pupil although you're not and uh, never, uh, well, never like an official
2: pupil. Well, never an official people no my, my my personal uh direct contact with Noga Bauer was mostly at lunch uh you know we, we would go That's as a group yes. I remember okay. going as a group to was it the the uh the, the the ivy room or the blue room i always get mixed up with one of them was a place you could get coffee the other mm. was the lunch
3: mm.
2: cafeteria for the yeah, university and, seven they, on the morning. and and Neugebauer, and when swerdlow was in town he would come to and i would go for lunch tumor never did uh, mm. and uh and, and we would talk mostly not talking shop and in the summer when that was closed, there was uh, what what in America at least used to be called a greasy spoon restaurant, uh, <laughs> about half a mile off campus that we would go to, where uh, the food probably probably shortened your life, but, uh, but we had a lot of we had a lot of good conversations. Uh, and, and but uh, no, I I, I, did, I think of myself in a way as as a, I learned a lot in my earlier. The way I, I I learned to write a lot of my earlier articles and I, I really began uh, much of my earlier work on history of astronomy was basically find finding things that Neugebauer had missed and stuff he had done. And he didn't mind this at all. Um, but the very first research paper that Gerald Toomer asked me to write for the class on Ptolemy's Almagest that that uh, he uh, did for me when I arrived at Brown um, was basically looking at a body of material in cuneiform tablets, in Greek sources, and also in uh, in Sanskrit sources, and, and some of this Tamil stuff, which all seemed to have some kind of relation. He said, I, I think there's there's a paper that could be done here bringing out these connections. And, and in doing this paper, I found that Nagyabar had misdated by two years uh, some of the, 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 the uh, Babylonian tablets that use this uh, system of calculating positions of the moon. And uh, Toomer showed my paper to, you know, beginning graduate student uh, uh, to, to Neugebauer, and Neugebauer was very happy with this and wrote a letter of recommendation for me to get a Canadian government fellowship on it. So uh, it, 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 he was... He was very kind in that way, but I also learned from his papers, the ones, especially going back to the 50s and 40s, uh, how you do this kind of thing, how you tease out mathematical structures from texts that are written with unfamiliar terminology, have gaps in them because the mice have eaten holes in the papyrus and so on, uh, and I, I still see those, those articles more than the books. I mean, certainly the history of ancient mathematical astronomy, though it, it is a treasure trove, but it's very hard to work with uh, because it really was uh, uh, converting into book form his private notebooks that other people don't necessarily find easy to navigate. But the articles are wonderful examples of how to do a, a kind of straightforward uh, analysis of a problem. Or a set of problems, mm-hmm. and uh, and as I say, I mean, you know, he did so much, and he he, he wasn't a perfectionist. He'd, he 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 had sayings to the effect of, you know, when you've done, you know, you do as much as you can, and then you publish, and then someone else can pick it up and continue it. Mm. Uh, and and so there there are mistakes in his work. And uh, several of my earlier uh, journal articles are picking up from those mistakes and gaps, and saying well, there's something more we can do with it. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I I I, I I I don't feel ashamed of that because it wasn't uh, I wasn't thinking that I was improving on the the grand old man at all, but really just the continuing the project he was doing. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. This is how we evolve. It's just uh improving in, in the sense of um contributing adding.
2: with something else adding, adding more yeah. because I, we I, was more. Say, I was saying that Saturn's huge volumes on history of on the history of science probably are seldom opened in libraries today hmm. as, far as fundamental works things like the astronomical cuneiforms edition for example or the greek horoscopes uh, if anything they, they've just grown and grown on the number of people who use them initially they probably have very few people Aside from book reviewers who looked at them at all, mm-hmm. and they now well, if you if you want to if you look around for who's the community of people who work at a technical level on Babylonian astronomy, it's twelve to fifteen people globally, which is a lot, uh, considering that we're talking about people who have gotten some degree of serological training or otherwise have got some skill set that comes into this. Whereas in Neugebauer's time, there were basically two, uh, Neugebauer and Sachs. <laughs> and, <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's
3: not a good thing that he put it down in book form rather than just on a computer, because now we have these
2: books which last forever.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly.
2: Well, except they they fall apart when you use them too much. (laughs) 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 I have have three copies of astronomical cuneiform texts and two copies of Greek horoscopes. And uh, one of the Greek horoscopes I had to have rebound. Uh, One of the astronomical cuneiform texts is basically falling out of the bindings. I mean, we live with these things. When we work on this stuff, we're in those books all the time. Uh,
3: yes. Good.
2: Uh-huh. These, are, these
0: are the kind of work that, that creates sources and source materials that people keep going at and, and become almost eternal uh, because you, you're not going to do this kind of work often. Uh, so once these, these materials are published, for, for example, the Greek horoscopes, um, it's difficult to supersede this kind of edition, and you always are getting back to that to, to, to study and to and to 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 do your your citations and to understand what has been done, what has evolved. So they kind of linger on uh, forever as marks of, of, of historical publications. while other books which are more general histories um, they become outdated and. And, and have a, a short period of duration in terms of, of historiography. Uh, and I think, from what I, I'm understanding, from what I know, and from what I'm hearing today, uh, I think Otto Neubauer worked a lot on these kind of sources materials that that, that stay and, and then become the, themselves the source for other for other studies for yeah. other studies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think um, we did. Uh, I think it was an excellent, uh, an excellent uh, conversation, and, 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 and we got to know a lot about about Otto Much more, uh, much more than, than we knew. Yes. Uh, and I, yeah. And we thank you very much both. for having for both for having this time to 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 remember do this this uh, in memoriam here with us and uh, yes. thank you and to
1: bringing us not only the historian but also the the person the individual yeah. the the personality this is yeah. something that we never could guess from and now we know much more about otto Nagabar. thank yeah. you very much
2: thank you very much <laughs>
0: okay.